Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Today uh, on E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily, we're actually going to flip the script and Mike Maines is on. He's on a lot, so you guys are used to seeing him, but we're going to talk about sustainable communities today, something that we're both interested in. He's going to ask the questions and I'm going to answer what I know. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for coming back on. We appreciate having you always. Anything new and exciting going on for you that you want to tell people about? Yeah, th- thanks for, 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 for having me, me again. It's always fun to talk about building science-related stuff, and, and it's fun for me to not, uh, not play the expert for a change. This, this is something I've been interested in for 30 years now going back to high school, and, uh, but I've never, I've never been able to pull the trigger to actually do it, and you have, so I'm really curious how uh, uh you know what what are your 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 secrets um nothing too interesting in my world just busy busy like you know the covid is terrible in most ways but for people in our field it's people are flocking out of the cities and moving to maine it seems like so people people around here just want houses and renovations and are interested in performance so it's on a professional Field, it's uh, it's 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 actually a pretty good time right now, but um, I think I think what I'm more interested in, and you're more interested in, is is more of the master planning of, of really, you know, instead of designing a thing or designing a house, it's really designing a community, or or it's it's all it, it's all of those, um, yeah. So just um, uh, just a, a couple of notes to sort of as 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 background, um, uh. Uh, 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 you and I live about an hour apart, and we both do a lot of work in Greater Portland, which sort of makes a triangle. And it's 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 a nice area, in a lot of ways. It's really poised for growth. It's undervalued, accessible to several nice smaller cities. Um, so, for, for better or worse, I see our sort of triangular area and, and spreading out from there, growing. Uh, there are some several quaint villages around, uh, uh, you know, within that that triangle. But you know, outside of the sort of city centers, village centers, uh, the homes tend to be scattered around with all kinds, you know, all different levels of quality and style. Um, so, what I like about the idea of a planned community, or or one of the things, is the chance to sort of create a cohesive atmosphere and and to get people together with shared values like like that's that's how you build a community like it's not just living adjacent to each other that doesn't make a community you need a shared set of values which things are so fractured these days it can be hard to find in rural communities so it's 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 nice to have a place where you can all come together um so i guess uh my i know i know i know you've you've done or, or you, you're working on SolarWay in Cumberland. You you gave me a tour of there a couple of months ago. Um, I know you're working on one in Freeport. You're working on one in, in, at, at Sunday River or near Sunday River. So t- just I'm curious, what's what is your experience with these the, these planned communities and um and and how did you how did you get started doing them? Sure. Um- my experience with the planned community is exactly like you said, people are looking for some kind of shared experience and, um, you know, living adjacent to each other is a subdivision and subdivisions have nasty connotation and words. So we usually try to avoid the word subdivision and talk about them as far as communities go. Um, and it started out uh, originally with a builder developer that I work with who bought a piece of property that was really inhumanely harvested, felt like she needed to give back um, had previously built a couple of houses in the past, started with a spec house, realized it was cold, it was drafty, it was expensive to heat, went kind of the whole opposite direction, built a, um, you know, a SIPS panel barn structure that she could heat with one stick of wood in the wood stove and said, okay, um, you know, how do I make this into a community? And so, um, 
interestingly enough, I was part of a networking group and the guy who does my computer work uh, for my Mac also did computer work for her and said, oh, this is the architect that you need to meet. Um, we met out on the site. It was just a scrub brush pile. Uh, there was stuff everywhere. They just, you know what, they, they just left everything behind. And, you know, we stood on the spot and, and talked about the vision of building a community with hiking trails and a community garden and um, a place where uh, we had worked out the importance of, you know, both solar and um, high performance building and that being really required as part of the neighborhood um, so that you're attracting people who, who are interested in those things. Um, but also had this kind of interesting, somewhat family dynamic. So that neighborhood is mostly farmhouses. They have uh, three bedrooms, you know, kind of in each house. And it was um, kind of based around this community garden, community living, community hiking trails um, feel within it. And it's actually, interestingly enough, just down the street from a bigger subdivision of just typical developer built houses and we have people who wander into the the community all the time and we're like this is exactly what i wanted it doesn't exist anywhere which it's starting to e exist a little bit more in in different communities you know once that phil have done has done um in fact another development in freeport i built a house in the development um up up there, there are, I think, 15 lots, and I built one house in, in the development, but there are a bunch of bright builds in there, and their covenants kind of said all of the same things, which was, you know, they had restrictive energy performance metrics and, you know, things that they had to meet to, to be able to build in this development. Um, but also it has this really cool community feel where it's like built in the woods. So all of those houses are, are built in the woods. And I think almost all the neighbors have dogs and they walk this sort of dead end loop around and, and it's a really sort of quiet nestled in the woods eco community. And, and they had a lot of the same mindsets for, for living in that neighborhood as well is that it had more neighborhood the houses didn't face each other they all face south they take advantage of the solar um and it just didn't feel like all the houses kind of stacked up together um but so in cumberland we actually started with one house as the test house like what can we figure out what to do that follows the pretty good house metrics of better than standard development, but maybe isn't going to break the bank of completely and totally custom built houses. And so it was meant to be plans that we developed that we could build again, that we could replicate this development. Um, and originally we started, um, and so this is something that I learned as part of it. Originally we started with this idea in mind of 1600 square feet or less small living, really well planned spaces that live to the outdoors and were part of the community. It wasn't so insular, like you drive in your garage and you don't see any of your neighbors. Um, we partnered with a real estate agent at one point during the process and houses seem to kept getting bigger and bigger. Like this is what the market wants and everything. And, you know, we keep shrinking back and in fact the next time when we when we do again you know the farmhouses are wonderful they work great they're good family structures um but we want to go back to the original plan and do you know 1400 1200 a thousand under a thousand um which is kind of what led me to part of what we're doing in the sunday river development which is smaller because as you know construction does not seem to be getting any cheaper especially during covid and there's a big gap between, you know, what you can buy and what you can afford to build. But that people are looking for communities either um, with a community building and maybe multi-generational living. You know, there are also really successful developments that have, um, that have 55 plus kind of neighborhoods. But I know there's one that 
one of my uh, colleagues went to check out. They're in the 55 plus range, thought that could be interesting as part of a community that values that. And all the houses faced north. So none of the light was taken advantage of. And they happen to live in a really beautiful house that faces south. And so they're familiar with the quality of the light in those spaces. And they're like, we can't move here. Like we can't move into this development. And so I think there's a lot to be said for how you plan the community and part of why I want to keep moving forward in that, in that vein. So that was a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, no it, um, it, it, it was a, a broad question. So, so your solar way development, that's, that, that's the one you, you started with, right? So that's, 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 um, it's, 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 it feels like a very like it feels like a country setting, but it's actually pretty close to a nice village center with with all all the all the stores and whatever you you would need. Um, I know I know somebody who tried doing doing an eco village in Wiscasset, you know, back you know ten or twelve years ago, and he had trouble getting getting uh, getting getting traction. I'd say it was a similar similar concept to yours, you know, um, efficient, you know, efficient homes, you know, uh, uh, well-designed, um, but he wasn't able to get traction part, partly maybe due to the, the recession at the time or, or, or probably largely due to that. But how, how important do you think it is for a planned community to be adjacent or, or how far do you have to be from a village center for, from services and what kinds of services do you need to be? Does it need to be on the edge of a city like Portland or bigger? Can it be out in the middle of nowhere like where I am? Or are, are there varieties? Um, I don't think it can be out in the middle of nowhere where you are. I don't think that they're ready for that yet. It has to be adjacent to some kind of attraction. So part of the attraction to Cumberland is it is very close to, to Portland as a rural community. Um, it actually has a really, really good school system. So it's very attractive to people with kids in the schools. Um, and also that it's um, kind of a rural setting, but close to everything. Like, you know, uh, the the community is like three minutes from popping on 295 and getting to both Freeport, which is, you know, Freeport, Brunswick, great places to go out to eat, do that stuff, have great communities, and also into Portland, you know, get to the airport and go to, to eat and the things you, we can't do anymore, you know, go to shows and that, that <laughs> stuff that, that's popular in, in Portland. So um, also, uh, it's really close to a healthcare facility. So if you have anything where you're looking to, like if your community is maybe based on s some type of, um, you know, 55 or plus uh, community where maybe there are smaller houses and you're grouping people together. Um, it's really critical that you're close to some kind of good healthcare. So up in Wiscasset, it's a little too far probably from most things where Cumberland is, you know, 20 minutes from Maine Med. And um, so, so I think Cumberland is the, you know, it's the rural community outside of Cumberland, Yarmouth, Falmouth are, is like the rural area outside of the city of Portland. So it attracts a lot of the people who live, work in Maine. Wiscasset would attract people who want second homes. And what they want in a second home community isn't necessarily the same as things that they would want in a community that would be closer. So like, for example, the Sunday River community, it's a ski in, ski out community. And so really what they're looking for there is adjacency to the mountain, um, you know, being able to, to either be on the uh, on the route, or if you're doing a more high-end eco community, having some kind of shuttle that it's ski adjacent, if it's not ski in, ski out. Um, and so that works really well, even though you would say Sunday River's a rural community. Um, what, what is popular up there as far as development goes, and any level of development in the community is um, 
the adjacency to the activity that they want to do, which is skiing. Or um, I think they actually have quite a big summertime, um, but those are outdoor people. So they want to have access to the mountain. They want to have access to trails. They want to have access to ride their bike. So if you were going to attract something like that, um, you know, in your area, I mean, you're not really in the middle of nowhere. You're in the lake region. And so I think that if you could group it, like if you've ever gone through, I think it's a Damerscotta Lake and they have a community of tiny little rentals that are adjacent to the lake. That would be somewhere that there's something that they're attracted to. So I think the way that a really successful community works is it's adjacency to something, you know, like Freeport is an attraction. You know, it's a place that people really like to go. It has, you know, Wolfneck Farms, it's got LL Bean, it's got a great downtown for shopping. It's some, it's a landing space. So the, um, the subdivisions and communities up there there are people who want to preserve, you know, and they're interested in keeping the preservation. And that's what makes some of those neighborhoods popular. They're, they're places where somebody wants to, you know, retire and they want single. So, so the, the tiny little community that we're doing in Freeport are actually three of the same unit um, that are all single floor living because that's a need that the community of Freeport has and it doesn't have enough of those. And so the site's big enough for three. So it's a tiny little community, but they all have a relationship to each other with net zero builds, single floor living, um, two car garage kind of right. I think it's maybe a mile or a mile and a half from downtown Freeport. So that's, that's what is probably the most important. Not so much, I th- well, a little bit with a community. Obviously, you don't want to be a half an hour away from a grocery store or, you know, too far away from some kind of healthcare facility if something happened to you. Um, but as far as the town, I don't know if it matters so much about the, the town as long as there's some draw to where you're building. So location is incredibly important and what you build in that location is important. So like when I look at Cumberland, the taxes in Cumberland are really high because I think 75% of their taxes is school tax. So if you were going to move to Cumberland, you'd really want to have a kid that you were putting in school because it's all about the school system. So building maybe a, you know, 400 square foot tiny home in Cumberland might not be what, like a community of tiny homes might not be what you'd want to do there. Right. So if, if, if costs are, are so important um, in, in this, this equation, you know, multifamily houses are generally considered or a way to bring the cost per 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 unit down is to build multifamilies where you're sharing walls and roofs and foundations with your neighbors. Um, obviously, you're giving up some privacy, but why do you think these uh, communities like like yours, you know, fairly small homes on individual lots, they're they're still going to be you know relatively expensive to buy compared to um, uh, living living in an older home or farther out in the country. Why, 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is why build houses like your solo away houses and not a multifamily? Um, I think there's a lot of people out there who don't want to live in multifamily housing. Um, like a lot of other, you know, buzzwords, multifamily housing doesn't have, um, it doesn't have a lot of clout. People think multifamily and they think that's, you know, an apartment. I would live in the city if I was going to, because there are people who live in million dollar apartments in the city of Portland, which is basically multifamily housing. So I think it comes down to how we describe what we're doing. And I think that some successful developments all over the country have 
some multifamily, some townhouses, some single family. And I think that depends on how big the community is. So um, when I was in Florida in October, we went to see, um, we went to see an all solar community in, um, in the middle of Florida, it's built in the middle of the swamp, right? So you're thinking, who's going to move to the middle of the swamp, but it was an old farm and they bought up the old farm and they put in a huge solar array out in the middle of the swamp and it runs a whole town. And so they put in a restaurant and they put in a gym and they put in a school and they put in a grocery store. And then they built different types of neighborhoods within the community. So they had neighborhoods that had smaller houses. They had neighborhoods that had views that were built on the water catch basins. They had neighborhoods that had bigger houses for families. And they, you know, they kind of grouped the neighborhoods together based on what, like who might want to live in that neighborhood. And they had some that had, you know, higher end, super efficient, you know, homes. And then they had some that did a little bit less good with the structure, but because the whole community is powered by solar electric, it kind of already started a little bit better than what you, you know, might've done. And so, um, I, I think it comes back to how they described their neighborhoods and their blocks and their things within this that got people away from the whole idea of multifamily or townhouse living because townhouses seem to be um, starter homes or retirement homes. I think I would say is, you know, people who don't want to mow the grass anymore and don't want to do maintenance and that, and then you have an HOA. So, so maybe you have enough money to pay for an HOA to do the maintenance stuff that you don't want to do. And so when you start talking about communities in that sense and stop talking about them as like row homes or, you know, like it's all about how you build them, I think in the communities, because People don't mind living in row homes and connected houses in a city that's cool, that has something that they want to do, you know, or like in Reston, Virginia, where they built shops and then they built apartments above and then they built, you know, connected houses and then farther out, maybe there are single family houses. And so it's all about the type of community that you build. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with building um, like the eco village that uh was it Go Home that built that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, G, G, oh, Geologic did, yeah, in, in, in Belfast. Yeah, I'm not sure how many homes, but yeah, they're, they're, they're passive houses. It's, it's a community of passive houses or near passive house outside of, or on the outskirts of Belfast. Yeah, and so I think there was a similar community um, feel in that. Or um, is it in Falmouth, this is it saltwater reach is that what the name of it is and they're sort of i've i've heard of it I, I've, I've never oh yes yes i know what you mean yeah yeah, yeah that's famous. and they had um you know they have kind of connected houses that are together and they're down and i think they overlook some kind of water i don't think it's like out into the open bay but it's some kind of like water salt water they grew in a lot of marshy plants i think there's a lot less um like there's less grass and there's more. And so that was built around, um, you know, I, I think that was built around more like native species. I, and, you know, I personally think we should have a whole lot less grass as I have an acre and a half that I mow and that's terrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, part of, part of communities and part of what we built into Solar Way, which I cannot take credit for, that is all my landscape architect. Uh, and I, they do think that working with the landscape architect is, is critical, um, is there's a, you know, there's a wildfire buffer that runs kind of along the development edge so that it's not just lawns everywhere, you know, and they did planting plans and what was here before and, you know, how can that, native stuff be used so that we aren't just mowing, you know, 30 acres of development. 
yeah well and that that leads leads into another question i had which is your your team uh includes a general contractor um and a landscape architect and you you're all women um uh, and, and and I think your general contractor Patrice. I don't think she's a hands-on builder, right? She's she's more of a more of a maestro type type person. Yes, or? <laughs> she's she's more the developer, maestro, uh, interior designer. Pulls the project together on site. Um, it's kind of a really unique and organic way to build, which is is very very different than a lot of you know. Here's your here's your development. Here are the colors you can pick from. It's five feet from the neighbor. Do you want a right side garage or a left side garage? You know. Um, so working with her as part of the development process is really different, I think, than working with a traditional uh, developer. Maybe a little bit closer to a GC. We have subcontractors who who do a lot of the physical hands-on work. Um, you know, carpenters who frame and finish carpentry and install windows and, you know, plumbing, electrical. I mean, most, most contractors don't soup to nuts anymore. Um, but yeah, she's more of a GC. I, I mean, she was probably out helping them install the triple pane windows on site at 17 Solar today because they weigh a lot and they probably needed a lot of hands, um, you know, and she tapes and, you know, she'll put up rigid insulation or EPS insulation down, you know, before they pour slab. And, and so she does, she's on the job site every day, but um, she's not the contractor uh, who's, who's kind of framing all of it. Actually, we do a lot of panelization um, and have our wall panels and stuff brought in. Um, everything from, from fully insulated with windows in and, you know, WRB ready for siding panels to just open wall panels that are pretty much just studs, so. Yeah, and, and Carrie is, is, is your, your landscape skate, skate architect partner. Uh, apologize for the stutter. Um, uh, so homes, homes in this. I mean, the homes, homes you're designing are not. These are not all. These, they're very nicely designed. They're very. They they have you know nice siding. They're they have cool finishes inside and out. They're, they're the kinds of houses you and I design custom as well. Um, that that level of home often does not get a dedicated landscape architect. Landscape architects are usually considered like those are for the richy rich people. Is is that a is that a misconception? Should more people be using landscape architects? Is a landscape architect critical to laying out a, a development yeah. like this? So most people think that landscape architects do, uh, you know, the fancy stone patios and the pools and all of the all of the things that are fancy, fancy, super rich, whatever. Um, and there are so many levels of service within landscape architecture um, and probably the most critical or most important one that people miss all the time is the grading plan. Where's the water gonna run on your site? How easy is it to get in and out of your driveway? Um, where should you mark off so that the contractor doesn't drive on your entire site and then compact all of the, the fill and everything that's existing on your site so that nothing grows in it afterwards. That's actually a big common misconception is, you know, yeah, maybe they need 20 feet around the building to get around, get around with lifts, do all of that. But if you don't kind of delineate places to park or land, um, then you end up with materials all over the site, um, job site parking all over the site, uh, driving all over the site, and you can really compact and cause a lot of issues. Um, but she also goes out with me um, on an initial site visit to help orient the house because um, people hear me say all the time there are some things that you just can't do again and one of those things is pick up the house and move the orientation because you didn't get it right um, and it's critical because um, she's going to know what's what plants are already growing on the site so what will maybe continue to grow in the soil so you don't have to start 
all over again, um, especially if you don't want a lot of grass, like what is already native there? What kind of trees are growing? Um, but how close you can get. And if you have to take down one tree, what's the root pattern of the other trees that are adjacent to it? And if you disturb one, are you going to have a vulnerable site where you now have trees that might fall in your building because of the way that they grow together as a, as a group or a community and you take one down and then you make the others vulnerable. So she looks at all of those things from the very beginning and does grading plans. And, you know, even if you can't afford to do the patio the first year that you build the house, if you bring in the base layer for the patio while the site is rough grading, then maybe you don't need to bring big equipment back across all of the grass that you just planted. Um, and so it's usually pretty cost effective to do a uh, groundwork for some of that. You know, maybe it's laying gravel for future steps in the yard, or it's laying a base layer for a patio or front entry, or, you know, just prepping the driveway so that all the water doesn't run to the front door. Because if you just sort of let it up to the, the subcontractor, some of them are really, really good. And some of them are a little less good. And if you don't know what to ask for, you don't know what you're going to get. And the site is critical and important. And the common things that we find is people want to just bring in more fill and build it really high out of the ground. Well, that might not work very well for the site that you have. Um, if you orient it to, to south to start and then you adjust it for, you know, driveway entry, et cetera, you'll get great light within the space. I think people don't know why they don't like their houses. I mean, sometimes they're poor layouts. Sometimes they all face north and they have just, you know, great north facing glass that looks out on the lake that they don't realize it's so freezing to sit in that room that you can't, you know, or you spend a ton of money to keep it heated. You know, so the landscape architect does so much more than a planting plan. Like if you don't want her to help you pick out which flowers or how your flower bed is going to work, that's fine. In fact, do you get to that point if you don't hire a landscape architect till five years down the road, you're actually spending more money and doing more work to undo the things that you did. Because the most common thing uh, I think in construction, especially in development construction, is to just throw loam and seed and grass everything because grass is cheap. But grass is also super invasive and really hard to get rid of after the fact. So um, it's critical, I think, mm -hmm. to have yeah. to have a good landscape architect who, especially when we're talking, you know, you and I are talking about communities that have a lot more than just houses in them. You know, they have some kind of uh, sustainable feature to them, you know, with the houses and how they're built, but it's also the connection to the earth, the carbon storing, you know, they're, and so not disturbing the site and just planting grass everywhere is probably a great. And I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot about all the different types of soil. But I do know that when you start digging and you find clay soil, like it's going to have drainage problems and not a lot's going to grow in it. So knowing that ahead of time makes it easier to make a plan for what you're doing with the site. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I'm more into landscape stuff than most architects and designers and builders. I mean, I, 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 I have a small farm. I practice permaculture principles, raise animals. Uh, and so I, I like to think I know what I'm doing, but actually on a project I'm bringing in Carrie because it's a little bit beyond me. It's just that there's too much going on. It's too complex. I know she's a specialist. I'm a generalist. So she's going to come in and help us figure out. It's, it's basically a, a, a working homestead and she's going to help us figure out how do we connect the barn and the old greenhouse and the new greenhouse and have it all accessible but then also and how and and like I have a patio laid out but she, she'll help she'll help us flesh out like what 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 is what is the patio what's what's around the patio so just um, um I haven't worked with her before but I'm excited to to, to get her 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 take take on all of that and I can see where I, her or somebody like her would be really useful for for development and then also just yeah 
I mean, so many developments are just cookie cutters. It's just, they're so boring. The houses are maxed out on the size. They take up the whole lot. They're just plopped on this square of grass and, and, uh, and, and, and the sod is rolled out and, and boom, you're done. And it's just, that's, that's not a home. That's like, a it's, it's, the, it's, it's the equivalent of working in a cubicle farm. If you're an office worker, it's like, do you want to work in a cool office or do you want to work in a cubicle farm? So people like work in a cubicle farm and they go home to their cubicles. It's like, you want, you want your house to have some character. And, and I think just having seen so solar way, I think, I think, I think it, it, you know, it provides that, you know, it, it feels like a collection of homes. Um, how, I mean, and I, and I know they're, they're all homes you designed. Do you think it's important? And then at the other end of the spectrum, like the cookie gutter homes are may or may not be designed by the same person, but it's basically the same, the same house is replicated, you know, left, right, left, right, but it's all the same house. Do you think it's important uh, to the character of a community for one architect to be responsible for all the houses? Or do you think it's possible to get the same feel with multiple architects or designers doing the houses? I like variety. So honestly, I think that it's not all that important that everything is designed by the same architect. I think if the community is laid out by, by someone and, you know, the things that are important are kind of designed into it, you know, like, where are you going to, um, where are you going to park? Where are you going to land? How do the driveways associate with each other you know is is this a community in the woods with hiking trails is this you know an open plain wildflower farm you know how how do they relate to each other um i think it's important and what you see in a lot of um place-based planning so i i think a great community takes into account place-based planning which is the scale and the orientation and the, you know, if you've ever been on a city street and you have one building that's set back, that one building always feels really odd and really awkward. And so I think that the buildings in the community have to have some kind of relationship to each other, but it doesn't have to be driven by the style of the building or even, um, it has, I think, a lot more to do with the scale, but it doesn't have to be done by the same architect, I don't think. I don't know that that necessarily makes it feel cohesive. I think the right. plan that you put in place to develop what's important in the community, so like at Solar Way, we knew we would have five different houses because we didn't want we could have built the first house five times and sold it and you know people maybe would have been okay with that um because they liked the house itself but we preferred to develop that house to use for future developments so that they're not all in the same place but that all of the houses were all farmhouses where you know two bedroom three bath had some kind of community feel to it um because I designed them all, there's probably a little bit of a similar concept or similar theme that runs through it. Um, but I wouldn't say that all of my work is similar either. So um, in the in the Freeport community, where I I only built one house in the in the eco community that that they had, um, I actually built a super modern house um, in a development that had a lot more traditional houses. The the developer who is developing it didn't really love modern structures. And so um, wasn't thrilled with the idea of a monoslope, didn't want any garages that faced forward, had, um, had the ability to veto some stuff. So we did a really cool rendering to help him understand what the house would look like. And he did approve uh, this modern house, but it was a lot more modern contemporary than I would say a lot of the more traditional gable roofed with shingle structures that were part of the neighborhood. And I don't feel like when you drive past the house, it's like, oh, that house doesn't belong because the community was well enough developed that it just feels like another house in the community. Right. Oh, that makes sense. 
so so sort of you know going from a traditional development to yours sort of the next next level or next or a a a a, a different direction it is co co-housing which is you know keeping the houses small and having you know shared gathering spaces maybe a shared kitchen shared guest bedrooms um more of a communal you know not quite a commune but more of a communal community like beyond community into community like going towards communal living do you see how viable do you see that as a model compared to your to, to what you've been doing i think it would have to depend on what what was in there people like their own private space but there have been some successful communities that i've been to that have like a communal uh building at where maybe they have um it's a gathering space that you can rent. So like, instead of having all of your family over for Thanksgiving dinner in your tiny house, there might be a building that has a bigger kitchen and has tables and you can kind of rent it out for your space. And then there also are people in the community who do, you know, events there, or if it's a multi-generational space, it might have, you know, a playground or art classes or something where maybe the older generation has some help in babysitting the youngest generation while the middle generation is at work or you know so there are a lot of ways to connect the communities but I would I don't know about like shared extra bedroom or shared like to like almost like two in-law suites that shared a central kitchen. That's a little bit probably too close to dorm living, which is kind of okay when you're like 18 to 23, (laughs) but um, probably not as, as big and the independent. And when you start thinking like retirement, you know, 55 plus communities, um, maybe there's something in that where, you know, if you and somebody else that you knew shared some kind of, um, when I moved to Washington DC, I had an apartment that was set up as, as a roommate apartment, which meant the bedrooms are, were on either side and both had their own private bathrooms. And then we had a living room and a kitchen that we shared. I could see that in an on a community that you would age into. So maybe there's like single family houses and then there's like, um, you know, some kind of grouped apartments that isn't in like just mobile home or mobile home, not mobile home, multifamily home, you know, kind of scenario is that they, you sort of age in place in your community, but that you could change your living situation depending on the level of things that you could do or needed to do. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've done any of those, like enough research on any of those to weigh in on whether or not there's a market for that, but there's definitely a market for something in the small house. Um, for sure. There's this idea in the, the, um, real estate community that everybody's looking for 2,500 square foot houses, but there's also starting to be a population of people who are single in their fifties, sixties, seventies, who don't want 2,500 square feet, don't need 2,500 square feet, but don't want a tiny home because they don't want to go up a ladder or something. And they don't want to maybe spend five, six, 700,000. I mean, they say the new affordable home is like 400,000. Well, if you're moving into retirement with starting to look at fixed income and being either by yourself or all of your kids are gone or even just two individuals, people want smaller and they don't want as much to take care of. Um, and so I think small communities, um, are popular in that maybe that we don't, there aren't enough of them out there because we went into this whole like 2,500 square foot housing, whatever. But also too, that maybe people just don't sell the really small houses. 
Um, so like if you look at Falmouth along Route 1 and Falmouth where they all have access to the water in those little neighborhoods, there's a ton of 900 square foot houses in there, these tiny little capes. And that neighborhood is very popular. I mean, those houses are still, you know, 700,000 for 900 square feet because of its location. So I think it goes back to, and the quality of the neighborhood, like they built a neighborhood of houses that were all really tight together, but they had, you know, they all either have a water view or access to water within, you know, 500 feet. So. Right. Yeah. Some of those, those are a little smaller. I've, I've designed additions for several. So it's like, I know, I know that the, the mod, they're not always conducive to, to modern life, but a lot of times that's just, it's, it's just, it's just a change. And, and they're, they're such simple houses that they're actually pretty easy to add on to, you know, pop up a dormer or pop out an addition that there's not a lot of jogs and things going right. on that makes, make it difficult. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I could keep asking you all day, but I know you have things to do. I think, I think my last question is, if it's if it's too uh, too difficult to answer, it's okay. But just just around financing, um, so if you have this big pot of money from somewhere, you find a piece of land, you 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 uh, get it surveyed, you get a um, uh, uh, you, you get a land planner and or landscape architect to help you lay things out. You clear it, you put in a road, you bring in utilities. It's a lot of money before you ever ever sell a house. Is it? Uh, are banks good about financing that kind of thing? Can you pre-sell houses? Do you just, do you have to find a financier in order to fund this kind of thing? Um, I think probably the most successful developments are bring somebody to the table, whether it's you as the developer have enough money to do the infrastructure or you have a, an investor. There are lots of people out there who do real estate investment. They don't want to have anything to do with the actual houses, but they want to make you know their money back off of doing the development of the land by the sales of the lots um, or in some cases on the real estate commission, some depending on how the development is set up there, sometimes are real estate commissions on the actual built product. And that, you know, is a way to pay back your investor on their initial investment in putting in, um, cause it's a pretty significant amount of money depending on how big your development is, what your town requirements are um, to, to have, you know, turnarounds, access to fire uh, protection and, you know, the length of the roadway, does the roadway become public or private? Um, and so there's, there's a pretty significant amount of money going into just the, the infrastructure. I think, Really, in order to sell them, you need to at least have uh, the roadway in. I think it's hard for people to drive up to a big grassy lot and see potential. There are some developments who can pre-sell. If you're in the right area, in the right neighborhood, it, and you have a great marketing scheme and you do all of that, you might be able to do pre-sales, which would get you enough. I mean, similar to like... If, you, if you're big enough, similar to Tesla, where they took pre-sale money, you know, up front to start building and generating, you know, the next version of the, the car that they're building. Um, it's probably a model that works. It's a little bit harder. Um, and I think part of what's most successful about developments is someone's ability to actually come and walk through it because, um, you know, as an architect, I've found that probably 95% of my clients don't actually see the 2D drawings in three dimensions and understand what that space will look or feel like. So if you have a previous development where somebody could walk through the house and see what it's like, they might be able to say, yeah, I can, I can bite the bullet and do a pre-sale because I know what I'm getting. But if it's just a concept and an idea with no road that you have to pre-sell the idea, you'd have to be in some location where development is just that hot that people want to buy into it ahead of time, um, which may or not, may or may not be Maine. <laughs> um, 
But I think most of the yeah. really yeah, that's asking a lot for me. Probably yeah, I think most of the really successful developments have some kind of development firm or a real estate investor behind it who can handle the cost and the infrastructure and the length of time for payback. And real estate development is really risky. I mean, that's you just never know when the economy is going to tank and you're going to sit on it for a while. Um, and so right. it can be it can be difficult to to really have success without any of the infrastructure, especially if you have to do some kind of crazy infrastructure like shared septics or, you know, shared water or fire ponds or, um, you know, a lot of fill or drainage or, um, you know, a lot of work in your subdivision plan, you, if you, have wetlands you have to you know it's it's a really detailed process to get a engineered subdivision plan um you know there are rules and regulations based on size community location um you know both state and local um so probably the most important thing is is obviously starting with the with the the land company land engineers who are going to make a plan for you because, um, you know, Maine has a lot of water. So we have a lot of wetlands. So we have a lot of challenging and difficult site work, um, between the granite and the wetlands and the water. Um, it, it can also be challenging. And so the site work is really critical to, to make it happen. And there've been plenty of places that, you know, haven't, haven't gone through because it just, you know, it ends up being so expensive to develop the land that, or the DEP won't sign off on it for some reason, um, you know, crossing some stream that has been developed into some kind of like major river waterway, some species, um, so it can be a little tricky and you know with the market you just never know like the market's hot right now but if the market crashes then people aren't going to be you know spending as much money on new homes they're going to renovate the existing houses that they have or they're going to live with what they have or they're not going to buy that second home in a you know lake district or ski town or um hiking area i mean I, there's so many communities are built around all kinds of different recreational activities so right is there any uh, uh yeah i think i think we can do this all again with with more 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 questions but is is, is there anything i that, that you think is important for somebody thinking about development to think about like is there a scale issue is there you know access to to city water and sewer, or is, is there anything that, that's a, that's important to think about before going too before going too far down this road that, that I haven't asked about? Yeah, I mean, I think research is really the biggest thing. Um, finding out what the community where you want to build needs or doesn't have, um, and then access and land planning um you know if you're gonna build a really off the grid totally awesome um like community in the middle of nowhere then i would say find your people first because you know that's it's going to be harder to make that work but that people are attracted to um for sure scale and planning and they don't know that that's what they're attracted to um but but the whole notion of kind of place-based planning and the scale and how big are the windows in it, you know, in relationship to me walking down the street and then how close is it to the street and how close is it to the neighbors and, um, you know, how close is it to work? If I'm working from here, if I'm working from home, you know, how distracting is the neighborhood? I mean, our neighborhood is usually pretty quiet, but right now we're building a house. And so at four o'clock on yesterday it was like rush hour trying to get out of our you know one lane neighborhood uh, and there are five houses here so i say rush hour there were three cars but that's me that's rush hour in Maine, right um it is and so i i think research is really just the the most important thing because a great idea in the wrong location is probably the worst mistake um and 
really being proactive and getting in before there are then too many developments who are doing the same thing is also really tough because then, you know, if you're competing apples to apples on something, then it, you know, just goes down to, you know, who has better amenities or who has a paved road versus the gravel road because you didn't have to do it. So you didn't put the money into it or, you know, access to um, town water, town sewer and trash pickup, which for some people is, is a pro for some people they don't care about. So um, kind of really knowing the community and who you're attracting is probably the most, um, the most critical thing. And then build your community around the land that's there. Cause I think people are looking for some kind of connection to each other and the, whatever the amenity is, whether it's town, school, hiking, skiing, water, lake access, that kind of stuff. So. Excellent. Okay. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start researching. Let's find out where uh, I want to do small because I think small is missing. So let's find out where people want to build small and let's, let's do it up. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today and interviewing me. I don't know that I'm an expert, but it's something that I'm really interested in, really passionate about. I mean, I think it's the future of, you know, providing better housing, not one at a time, you know, a 20 acre property in the middle of the woods that's passive house, which is wonderful. But, you know, that's a one at a time aspect that not everybody can afford to do. So, um, I think there's a lot of merit to different types of housing, different types of communities, different size houses that are all built along the pretty good house standard, you know, better, more durable, more healthy with some kind of connection to the community, whatever is important to that area's community. Right. Well, and there's the economy of scale and environmentally just, you know, compressing development you know you know instead of having a bunch of houses on five acre lots having a bunch of houses on a five acre lot and then preserving 20 acres is a lot more environmentally friendly yeah so the we have five houses on i can't remember if it's 25 or 35 acres and four of the five houses are on the front um there's a stream that runs through the property. And so four of the five houses are built kind of in the front. I think they have acre and a half lots on, on the front side. Then there's a stream. Then there's one house on the back side of the stream, which leads to the trail system, which is all preserved for hiking trails in the back. And it actually connects to uh, the community farm with additional hiking trails. So I think from the back side of the property, you can go for like 25 miles or something. Um, and they got permission to kind of like cross over CMP's land to connect to the the rear abutting trail system so it was like okay we don't want these to be really close together where you can touch your neighbor we oriented them all south and then we slid them back and forth on their lots within their buildable areas so that they don't point at each other either so like when you're standing at your kitchen window you're not looking in the neighbor's kitchen window um and then it said, okay, we're going to group these together on these lots but we're going to give everybody access to the back trails and Three of the five homeowners have dogs. The fourth homeowner, I think, is going to get a dog. Uh, and the fifth owner has a cat who's probably terrorized by all the dogs in the neighborhood. But, um, you know, so they, they go out and they walk their dogs. And they're, if you're a dog community, having access to go out and walk a trail that's directly on your property that you don't have to put your dog in the car to do that is, you know, that's an incentive to people with dogs. For sure. Well, th- thank you for sharing all of your expertise. It's, uh, um, it really is is an interesting model. I know it's common, or the, the, the general idea is common elsewhere, but Maine is unique in a lot of ways. And we just, we don't have a lot of developments yet, but people are moving here, especially with the COVID, people are moving here. So I think we can be part of, continue, you know, continuing having Maine, you know, c- continuing having Maine be a special place. It may not look just like it does now, but it can it can maintain its position as, as an environmental leadership and being a fun place to live. Yeah, I think the building science 
uh, in the New England area that's unique to, to here will hopefully, as we grow more developments, push it towards more sustainable communities to preserve what everybody loves about Maine, um, even as our population grows, um, especially now as people are kind of moving out. I think that there could, moving out of bigger, you know, bigger me metropolitan areas. Um, I think if we could push the way development happens here to keep preserving what we love about Maine, I think that would be awesome. Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matromarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.